John chapter 5, verse 19. I'll go ahead and read it for us and we could pray. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. This is the, this is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, please help us today to understand everything that you have for us, not an iota less or more. And we pray that we too would be able to tap into the Father's heart and be that in tune with the rhythms of our Heavenly Father, even as you were. God changes from the inside out, and if there's blockage, if there's clutter, if there's furniture on the inside that needs to be rearranged. We invite you to do that for your glory, for the furtherance of your kingdom, and because you love us, for our joy too. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Growing up as a kid and still to this day, I have this uh, mantra stuck in my mind that I've heard over and over from ads, from television, from cartoons, uh, from friends. Uh, from employers, from work environments. It is this concept of living without limits, almost like a badge of honor. Uh, to give you an example, here's a, a, a quote by a particular author. And he says this, if you, if you always put limits on everything you do, physical or anything else, it will spread into your work and into your life. There are no limits. There are only plateaus. And you must not stay there. You must go beyond them. I feel like I've been hearing this message my entire life. There are no limits. Exceed your limits. Pass boundaries. Break records. Do more. Go faster. Try harder. It was actually my generation, of which I am on the oldest end of, that grew up being told that we could do anything that we wanted. Literally anything we wanted. We could be anything that we wanted to be. We could do anything. There was no limit to the opportunities afforded to us. And if you start thinking about this, if we can do anything, pretty soon on the tail end of the can is the pressure to do uh, what we feel like we should do. If we can do everything, pretty soon we start feeling like we should do everything. Technology in our day and age is unprecedented and it allows us the ability to do as much as we can or cannot. We're promised to be able to do more things in less time. But let's just say that technology and gadgets give you more time. What do you do with the extra time? Well, if you're like me, you jam it with other things that you're supposed to do. Making us one of the busiest cultures in the world today. Working more hours in a given year than almost any country in the world. When we uh, did the prayer tour in London, uh, I remember my first day getting on the, the tube or their, their train uh, system over there and getting in a chat with a, I think it was like a 50, 60-year-old Brit. Uh, and he immediately began laughing at me and Brianna because, 
And I quote, you guys don't have a month of vacation every year? Come to find out that almost all, for sure all Brits, but most of Europe actually by law have to take a month off to just relax. Now, I don't know if, they got, if they're actually relaxing, but they get a month of vacation. He was laughing at me because we only get two. I get laughed at in London for not having enough vacation. I get laughed at in America for taking too much vacation. But I really don't mind because there's a part of me that loves being busy. I wear busyness as a badge of honor. And competition, even for those moments where I'd love to relax and to not be busy, is always there to remind me about the endless pressure that I need to perform. We're busy. But we're not just busier than ever. We're lonelier too. We're more frustrated. And when you look into the life of the church, those to whom Jesus promised would have an abundant life, you don't see much difference. Do you? We're busier and lonelier and more frustrated than we've ever been before. There are two problems with a lifestyle that is marked by busyness. And when I say busy, I don't mean you have a full plate. I'm speaking about a, a state of mind, which I'll talk about in a, in a bit. The first problem is we literally cannot do everything. I know the cartoons tell you that. I, just this morning, I was wa- I, the kids were watching Umizoomi, and the theme song says, uh, I can do anything. And it just says that over and over and over and over. And I said, well, you can't, you can't stop singing to me. Failed in that regard. <laughs> it's a mathematical fact that you cannot do anything. Now, physical limitations seem to be pretty clear to us. Uh, if you tried to jam 50 pieces of furniture into your house, uh, you might be able to do it. But if I told you to jam 1,000 pieces of furniture in your two-bedroom house, uh, you wouldn't even give it a second thought. There are physical limits that are pretty obvious. Why aren't the emotional limits that obvious to us? Or the relational limits, the mental limits, or spiritual limits. Why do we try to jam thousands of pieces of furniture into our hearts and souls and schedules thinking that it's all going to work out? It is impossible to do everything. The problem of busyness is really a problem about limitations. And at a certain limit, something will always break down. Stuff a thousand pieces of furniture into your house, something's going to fall apart. Either your house, your furniture, or you. But it's not just physical things. Something will always break down. It might be your soul. It might be your heart, your mental state. It might be your body. It might be your most valued relationships. At the end of this breakdown is what most of us call burnout. Burnout is waiting for everybody who has not learned the gift of limits. But it's not just a physical, emotional, relational, social, heart impossibility that we just can't do everything. 
as believers and followers of Jesus, we are emphatically not called to do everything. It is a part of our calling to not do everything. And you have to look no farther than to look at the very person whose lives we're called to emulate. Jesus, Jesus. Jesus didn't do everything. Jesus could do everything. Jesus did not do everything. Even though he's God. Look at this first phrase in our text. Bible's open. I can do, this is his self-imposed limitation on himself. This is God in the flesh. I can do nothing of my own accord. He's not saying he doesn't have the ability. He's God. But God in human flesh, what Paul tells us in the book of Philippians that we look through, telling us that uh, he, uh, uh, excuse me, John chapter 1 first, that he, he stooped down to our level, took on human flesh and became one of us. Paul would say in Philippians, he actually takes on human limitations as well. He humbles himself to the point of a servant, even to death on a cross. And as he lives his life, as you examine his life, you see that even though he has the ability to do anything, he can call down fire and angels, he can eat bread in the wilderness when he starts, he can do all sorts of things. He only, he, he doesn't do everything that's expected. He doesn't fill everybody's expectations. He doesn't heal every leper in the village. He doesn't cast out every single demon. He doesn't accept every dinner invitation. He doesn't eat, even though he hasn't ate for 40 days just because his flesh or the devil tell him that he has to. He often ducks crowds at the apex of their excitement. And he even tells his disciples to take a cat nap on a mountain, Mark chapter 6, right as their ministry is about to explode in popularity. Jesus is driven by a, a, a different engine. And yet, we are emphatically not exactly the same as he is. We are not God, and yet we try to do everything that we can. I think God, just by looking at the life of Jesus, is trying to tell us something. God is God, and we are not. In fact, he tells us that a few times. I'm thinking of Psalm chapter 46, be still and know that I am God. That we are limited, and we must actually embrace certain limitations. And we see this all over the design of creation. God designs creation, including yourself, with certain limits. One of my favorites is sleep. Think about this for a second. When you sleep, you can't do anything. You can't think. You can't talk. You can't argue. You can't justify yourself. You can't go through your checklists. You can't uh, finish your to-do list. You can't do anything. And for some of you A-types, that's exactly why you hate to sleep. Some of you are like, I wish I could multitask as I'm dreaming. But there is a moment in the day that God has instilled into us. We literally cannot live without sleep. Where we are forced to do nothing. Uh, Now it's said that Santa Barbans have some of the longest lifespans in the country. I think the average is about 85 or 86 years old and then some. Let's say we live... uh, 
live to see 86. And let's say we also uh, assume that we are obeying the design of God and sleeping eight hours a day. For 86 years, that is over 210,000 hours. Or to put it this way, if you were to take all of your sleep after having lived a full life and put it together, you would have slept for 28 years straight. For those of you that just can't stop doing stuff, God has instilled into your fabric, into your life, saying, I'm going to make you do nothing for 28 years. How you like that? A third of our lives where we do nothing. It's not just sleep, but he's instilled this into the rhythms of our days, 24-hour days. There's daytime and there's nighttime. One stops and the other begins, and another cycle continues. We see that with seasons. Seasons change. He even instills it into the actual week, telling us to honor the Sabbath where we are to stop striving and working, to delight and rest in God because it is holy. Now, we're not just to embrace limits, but if you look at some of the limits God has instilled into our lives, he looks upon them with delight. You know what the Bible continually says about sleep? The psalmist says this, God uh, gives to his beloved sleep. Sleep is for people that God loves. <laughs> Proverbs chapter three, I think it's uh, verse 24, says that uh, I, when I lie down, I will not be afraid. When I lie down, my sleep will be sweet. Another psalmist tells us, uh, sings to us actually, that God ministers to us in the night watches. He meets us in a special way when we're resting. Sleep is good. When we speak about the limitations of the day, we actually see in the beginning, in creation, God looks at these limitations, these changes, these limits of time and space and even seasons, and he declares them to be good. Sabbath, he declares to be holy and actually commands people to honor it. So these aren't just limits, among there are a few others, that we must embrace. God actually seems to have the opinion that we must embrace them because they're good. They're gifts from God. For those of you that might be on the verge of burnout and insanity, you might be a little more in tune with why the gift of limits might be a good gift from God than maybe the rest of us. But let me just describe some of the gifts that come out of knowing your limits. One of them is margin. You know what margin is? Margin refers to the empty space in a book between the edge of the page and the text, right? Um, there's an entire science behind book design uh, involving just like the way the, te- the, tip, the, the, type, the way the text looks, the kerning, the space between the, the letters and the margin. People won't actually buy the book, even if they do, they won't last through the book unless it's well designed. One of them is margin. Now, if you were to pick up a book that had no margin, the text was bunched up against the edge of the sheet, first of all, you'd probably lose out on some words that get cut off, but also, you'd probably have a hard time reading it. If there's no space for the text to breathe, design-wise, the book will feel crowded. It'll be difficult to read. You'll feel rushed. You might even feel nervous as you're reading it. 
This is what some of our lives look like. We have no margin. And because we have no margin, and we don't recognize our limits, our lives feel crowded and rushed and nervous and are difficult to read or even live. We're told by some loudmouth preacher to spend time with Jesus and we ask ourselves, but I have no time. Our hearts long for deep, meaningful, rich, spiritual community. We're wondering how in the world we'll find the time. Why? There's no margin in our lives. Medical doctor by the name of uh, Richard Swenson first discovered marginless living in his patients when he began to see that a huge amount of their health problems was actually coming simply from stress. When he began to probe deeper, he started to discover that all of that stress came back from a marginless lifestyle. As he began to see that and put the dots together, eventually he started to discern the same pattern in himself and immediately cut his work hours in half, even though it meant taking a huge hit to his income in order to create more margin in his life, which ended up saving his marriage, his relationship with his kids, his love for Jesus, and his own soul. He'd eventually, years later, write a book. He called it, called Margin. And he says this, this is fun. He said, the conditions of modern day living devour margin. If you are homeless, we send you to a shelter. If you are penniless, we offer you food stamps. If you are breathless, we connect you to oxygen. But if you are marginless, we give you yet one more thing to do. Marginless is being 30 minutes late to the doctor's office because you were 20 minutes late getting out of the bank because you were 10 minutes late dropping the kids off at school because the car ran out of gas two blocks from the gas station and you forgot your wallet. Margin, on the other hand, is having breath left at the top of the staircase, money left at the end of the month, and sanity left at the end of adolescence. All you parents. Amen. Margin is the baby crying and the, uh, excuse me, marginless is the baby crying and the phone ringing at the same time. Margin is grandma or maybe a friend taking the baby for the afternoon. Marginless is being asked to carry a load five pounds heavier than you can lift. Margin is a friend to carry half the burden. Marginless is not having enough time to finish your book, your reading that's about stress. Margin is having time to read it twice. And when you look at the life of Jesus, you see that he's not just dictated by busyness. He's driven by a different engine. And what that engine is, he tells us very clearly. I only do what I see my Father doing. It's not that he's lazy or that he's bored. He's just on a mission. And he stands on a certain principle and a vision and he knows exactly what that is because of his communion with the Father. And he's able to say no to a bunch of other things. And he has margin. If we, were to look, if we were to look at Jesus, and Hebrews tells us that when we see Jesus, we see the Father. He's the visible representation of the Father. So you want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus, the Son of God. If you want to know what God is like, and you're looking at Jesus, we'd have to say, not only does he live 
with a certain amount of healthy margin, at least when he was on this earth. But he certainly doesn't call any of his disciples, if you look at their lives, to marginless living. Now, careful. He does call us to suffer for his namesake. He does say we'll encounter trial and difficulty. He even says we'll have to do some things that we might not want to do. And we might even have to sacrifice our pleasure and our comfort in order to do things. Now, this isn't an excuse to just be self-centered. However, I never see in the Gospels Jesus calling his disciples to be busy for busy's sake or to be out of control. Jesus was free to do anything that came upon him in the moment. What are some types of margin? I'll just list off a few just to put some skin on these bones. But one of them, the obvious one is physical, right? Physical margins. Some of you are tired. You're physically tired. Maybe because you don't sleep. Maybe because you work when you're supposed to sleep. It's maybe that simple. You're tired. Overworked too much. Driven by something far deeper. Another type of margin is emotional. We've been speaking a lot about emotional uh, depth in the heart. And you have been created with a certain amount of uh, reserves. You need to be poured into. Your heart needs to be full as God and others with God pour into you. I love the, uh, some of the ways you've probably heard Gary Chapman speak about the five love languages. These are similar. Some of us need words of affirmation. Some of us need encouragement. Some of us need physical touch, you know, like a hug or a pat on the back or a smile. Some of us need fellowship. There's a variety of things that we need. Some of us need rest. Some of us need to be able to process our emotions, even the negative ones. Some of us just need a buddy. Some of us need to surf more and relax, maybe hit the gym. I could go on forever. Emotional reserves. If you're not getting that, you are hitting your emotional limits. And if you keep doing that, going to pay the price. Relational margin, what's that mean? Well, it means that you have room for things that matter, like relationships, you know, the, the things that we all deeply want. A lot of us deeply want spiritual, rich community and relationships, but are simultaneously unable to achieve them because we are too busy. Sometimes that busyness is just the amount that we're doing, or the amount of people that we're trying to hang out with. Whatever it is, maybe it's a a, a problem of boundaries. What would it look like to establish boundaries, push things out in order to make room for things that matter, that one or two people in our lives that we really need to be there. The last one, but probably the most important and the hardest to discern is spiritual margin. The number one reason I am told, after this summer be my 10th year at reality, the number one reason I am told that people don't spend time in communion with God is what? I'm busy. If we were to go down some of these lists, I imagine that a lot of you would say deep, meaningful spiritual community is an absolute necessity. I need that. I don't think anyone in this church, maybe a couple, but most of us would say 
uh, would say anything less than I need to spend time with the living God. I need uh, real relationships. I need to live fully out of my heart. But we have not, maybe, yet discovered the law of limits and the gift of margin. And if we keep living this way, one of those things is going to break. And it's not going to be God. At a certain point, we have to be able to listen. Our bodies and our hearts are trying to tell us something. And will we listen? Years ago, as I've shared with you on many occasions, uh, my story of nearly burning out, and it wasn't that I was working hard or even working many hours or doing too much even necessarily, but that some of these things, relationally, spiritually, emotionally, they were, they were empty. I was doing all of that stuff on fumes. You ever drive your car on gas fumes? Bad idea. That's what I felt like, just <laughs> I'm almost there, just trying to coast into the gas station. As I began to scream, we've spoken about this, our emotions like anger and depression and anxiety, things like that were screaming inside me. My heart was like a siren telling me I needed to slow down. I'm not perfect. I still fall into bad habits and I'm busy on occasion. But my life looks, by the grace of God, a lot different than it did in 2013. Still able to do things that I am passionate about. Still able to have a full workload. But I'm also able to take my daughter to school. I find myself able to slow down and cook a meal for my family. Sit down and look at them in the eyeballs and not at my phone. I feel the freedom to turn this wretched thing off and store it where the sun never shines. I can slow down and breathe. I can open up my Bible and actually delight in the presence of God and not feel pressure externally. There's some things changing along the way. And little by little, my heart is coming alive. Some of you are hearing this and you're saying, well, easy for you to say, you're, you're kind of the boss. And if I were self-employed, I would be able to call the shots too. Now, I think there's something to be said for people who are self-employed, who own businesses and are entrepreneurs, that the pressure on you is arguably more difficult than others. That pressure is often self-imposed and that's what you live with. But I think you're, you're also right. We do at least have control over a lot of our lives in that regard, and we can choose to say yes or no to certain things. So what about the person in this room who works 90 hours a week? It's maybe a single parent with kids. And it's not that you don't want margin in your life, it's that you have no control. If you were to take this sermon back to your boss, they would tell you a few words and tell you to pack your lunch and get out so you don't. They don't believe in this stuff. They want you to 
bring home, they want you to you know, hit that bottom line for them. Perhaps some of you have no control over your schedule. What, what is a person, a Christ follower to do who has no control? Think about this. What is under your control today? Maybe it's not your job. Maybe you can't do anything about that. Maybe you do have like 17 kids that are just crazy and they never sleep and they need everything from you. You can't control that. What can you control? Maybe it's a sliver of time right before they wake up. There's your margin. What are you going to do with that? Are you going to cram it with other stuff? Are you going to ask the Lord, what would you have me do in this 15 seconds? 20 minutes, one hour. What would a small taste of the divine gift of margin do for some of you today? Uh, Author tells a story about a Uh, It's actually a Hasidic tale that points out our tendency to want to live out of someone else's life instead of our own. Stories about this rabbi named Zuzia and how when he was an old man, uh, said, in the coming world, they will not ask me, why were you not Moses? They will ask me, why were you not Zuzia? The idea here being, God made you to be who you are. He included in who you are a whole set of limitations that are God-given. You can't do everything. And you can't live somebody else's life. And you can't always live other people's expectations of you. And that's largely been a driving force of this entire series. What does it look like to live authentically out of my heart? Not yours. Out of God's expectations for me, not others' opinions about me. A lot of my problem, it was turning out, was trying to be someone that I wasn't. And as my heart began uh, getting healed, growing in self-awareness, being free from uh, uh, bad scripts, margins started to free itself up in little unexpected ways. If you're not living fully out of your heart according to the Father's will, what's the other option? Well, if you're not living fully out of your heart with the Father, you're going to live fully out of your false self. The false self is like what the Apostle Paul would call the flesh. We've talked about that at length at, on different occasions, but I'll just boil it down to three things. The, the false self is what I can do, what I can get, or what others think about me. For those of you that are so busy that you're stretched thin that it's ruining everything, think about why you're busy, and I'll bet you it is able to be traced back to one of those three motivations. I'm busy because if I'm not, I'll feel guilty what others think about me. I'm not because I, live, uh, I have a standard of living that requires a certain amount of money, so I work this amount of, of jobs because I, I want to have that what I can get. I'm living, uh, I'm living this way. I have no margin. I'm busy because it makes me feel good about myself, what I can do, pride. Eugene Peterson writes two reasons why we're busy. I love this. He says, I'm busy because I'm vain. I want to appear important, significant, 
And what better ways to do that than to be busy? The incredible hours, the crowded schedule, and the heavy demands of my time are proof to myself and to all who will notice that I am important. When others notice, they acknowledge my significance and my vanity is fed. Or two, I'm busy because I'm lazy. I indolently let others decide what I will do instead of resolutely deciding myself. It was a favorite theme of C.S. Lewis that only lazy people work hard. By lazily abdicating the essential work of deciding and directing, establishing values and setting goals, other people do it for us. Of course, this isn't a chide to not work hard, but to work free. Notice how Jesus is free. I love this story in John chapter 7, uh, where he's on his way to the Feast of Booths, and his brothers, uh, feeling pressure because they're, they're having a problem believing in him, are saying, you know, you're doing all of these miracles in this small town of Judea, but if you wanted to be famous and popular, you'd do this in Jerusalem. Go to the big city. It'd be like saying, hey, there's a mighty move of God happening in Torrance, but that's not smart. You should go to Hollywood. And Jesus says in John chapter 7, uh, I think verse 7 and 2, My time has not yet come. Your time is here. The world can't hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to the feast. My time has not yet come. Jesus operates in this level of freedom. If you look at Jesus, sometimes the most holy thing a Christian can do is say no. is say no to a bunch of things that are just not right for you. But in order to do that, it must come from a deep place of union with Jesus. That last line in our text, he sets his limits, he lives his limits, he knows what his margins are, but he also tells us at the end, whatever the Father does, that's what the Son does likewise. This is not mere what would Jesus do type stuff. Jesus is not simply mimicking the Father as best as he can. He is in union with the Father and everything that Jesus does comes out of a deep well of communion with God. And Jesus would eventually pray this type of freedom for you and me. When he said in John chapter 17, just as you, Father, are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them even as you have loved me. In order to experience the freedom to say no sometimes, just to delight in God and in others, we have to be set free from the heart level. We have to grow in self-awareness, our blind spots, our idolatry, obstacles that we set up for ourselves, the scripts that we continue to live through in order to be free, not to do everything that the world is constantly telling us to do. You might be saying, well, how do I do that? And Scazzaro in one of his books offers a list of ways to discern limits. In other words, God speaks through our emotions, no surprise there. He says, I know I'm off center when I am anxious, I'm rushing or in a hurry, when my body is in a knot, when I'm doing too many things, when my mind can't stop racing, when I'm driving too fast, when I'm not able to be fully present with people, when I'm irritable about simple tasks in life like having to wait in line at the supermarket. I'm skimming over time with God. And 
And yet it was Jesus himself who embraced the ultimate limit, which is death itself, to counterintuitively bring life to his people. Not saying we can, not saying we should quit our jobs, but I'm saying there's more to our jobs and to our lives than a rat race. There's divine rest and delight, but it's gonna require that his people learn. We don't have to do everything. I'm gonna ask uh, Alex to come out, the rest of the band, as we sing. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna cut this short. We're actually gonna, gonna sing a little more short than usual. Because even if you feel powerless to create margin in your life, I wanna give you a little piece this morning. We're gonna end early today for no other reason than that's what God loves to do sometimes. And you, you know, do whatever. Some of you could stay for a few extra minutes and chat and talk, drink some coffee. Others, you might be like, oh, I'm going to beat the lunch crowd. Yeah. <laughs> Do it. Doesn't matter. Just receive a little, tiny, almost insignificant taste of margin as a gift, a countercultural gift of God. And I pray that it whets your appetite for more. As we sing today, I want you to ask yourself two questions. Why do we feel so spread thin, overcrowded, and rushed? And what does that say about our hearts? What is our heart trying to tell us? Sit with that question. And as God begins to reveal what your heart is telling you, ask yourself this. Is there anything in your life, your schedule, your mind, your social activity that you sense God in his kindness towards you is trying to get you to say no to. That's all. Just sit in that. Be with Jesus. Amen.